This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join me as we seek out new ideas and new realms of perception and relationship in the world. If dogs run free, why not we? Across the swooping plain. My ears hear a symphony of two mules, trains, and rain. Best is always yet to come. That's what they explain to me. Just do your thing, you'll be king. If dogs run free. My guest is Carlene Stangy. She's a veterinarian with over 20 years of mobile emergency practice in rural Colorado. And she's the author of a wonderful new book, The Spiritual Nature of Animals, a country vet's exploration of the wisdom and compassion and soul of animals, which is a wonderful integration of animal stories, traditional spiritual wisdom, and quantum science to help open our minds and see animals and our relationship with animals in a completely new way. If dogs run free, then what must be must be, and that is all. It can cure the soul, it can make it whole. If dogs run free, I just loved your book. Oh, 
Thank you. I've been reading it for the last week and totally, totally loving it, loving all of it. In many ways, it brought back reading James Harriet's All Creatures Great and Small many years ago. Mm-hmm. A little bit of, of All Creatures Great and Small meets comparative religion. Exactly, exactly. And you do such a wonderful job of integrating traditional spiritual wisdom and even quantum science into the picture to help us see animals and even ourselves in a profoundly new light. Wow, thanks. I love the way you comprehensively encapsulated all of these wisdom traditions in such a small amount of space. I took Eastern religions in college many years ago, and you did a far, far better job in your book. Well, you know, I spent 20 years doing it, so I had lots of opportunity to change things. I mostly listened to tapes while I was driving my pickup truck around La Plata County working on animals, and then I'd take notes on the side and go home and rewrite the notes and read them, and then I'd go interview a llama, or it was quite a process, and then I had to learn to write. So I'm glad I had 20 years because I don't think it would have been accepted before this. You're probably right, or at least not as widely accepted, and I think my sense, my feel of this book is that this could very well become a new classic, a new standard in this area. That's wonderful to hear. You know, I really think the material deserves greatness. And all along, I thought, I'm not going to self-publish this book. This book needs to be great. This material is important, and it deserves respect. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to do an excellent job on it. And I had a lot of help from New World Library, and I do think it turned out great. I'm so happy that you like it. Oh, I love it. I think it is definitely worthy of a wide audience. I mean, your story's every bit as good as James Harriet's, and his book was a huge success. I just don't see any reason why this one won't be. Well, that'd be nice. It's my retirement plan, so... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you. And I hope during this interview that you'll take every opportunity to tell stories of your experience. Oh, you bet. Great. So you're a country vet who did mobile emergency work in rural Colorado for the first 20-some-odd years of your veterinary practice. Give us a sense of what that was like for you. Well, La Plata County is mountainous and mostly dirt roads, and at the time particularly more so. And You know, people would call from, you know, an hour's drive away, sometimes more, with a serious problem, and I would drive day or night to go up there, (laughs) go up on some mountaintop or down in some deep ravine somewhere where there's no cell phone service and help people with their wrecks. You know, what is it, a colicky horse or a laceration? And, you know, I also did regular daily work you know, attending to vaccines and deworming and general pregnancy exams, things like that. And I'd just come walking in the door in the evening and the phone would be ringing and someone would have a colic or something and I'd have to drive again. And people discovered horse wrecks, usually I call them wrecks because accidents, first thing in the morning when they go out to feed and then when they come home from work in the evening. So those are the two emergency times. First thing in the morning the phone would start ringing. And I have appointments all day. And yet 
I got to go. I got to go help this foal was born, and the mother won't let it nurse. And I have to sedate her and get the foal to nurse. Otherwise, it will die because it needs to get that colostrum, the very first mother's milk. It needs to get that within the first 12 hours to have immunity. So I got to go now. There's no waiting. <laughs> you know, it's so racing around the county. I mean, I remember one night. I had a colic way on the dry side, which is way west of where I live, and I got back in the truck. It was like 6.30 at night, and I had a colic on the other end of the county in Arbalese, and it was an hour and a half drive. (laughs) So that's what it was like. So did you get much sleep during those 20 years? Um, I slept, but it was often disturbed by images and odors and things from the day, you know, veterinary medicine, for small animal veterinarians too, can be really quite disturbing. You see a lot of really unpleasant things and unpleasant odors and there's a lot of death, but that's life, you know? I mean, it's real life and death experiences, intimate situations with people and animals, so it's very rich. So learning to deal with it is very helpful for spiritual growth if you don't, you know, become an alcoholic or depressed or commit suicide. And the suicide rate for veterinarians is four times higher than the national average. I think, you know, financially we're not the richest folks. We have a financial issues, particularly new graduates. We have a lot of student debt. They don't, we don't get paid that well. And then you throw in a few interpersonal problems. And fortunately, I have a wonderful husband who is extremely supportive and I remember coming home and the phone would ring and I'd roll my eyes and he'd grab some food and go with me and feed me in the truck. Wow. Yeah. And it's particularly hard to deal with that, as you said, when you first come out of veterinary school because you probably don't have much experience with dealing with such stress. Right. They don't really teach you about the psychology of the people that you're dealing with. And, you know, these people have strong emotions about what's happening. I remember going in for emergency, a woman's black chow chow fell out of the back of her pickup truck and broke its femur, and I had to go in to the emergency and take the x-ray, and I told her it's broken, and, you know, here are the options for repairing it and what they cost, and she screamed at me, you're ruining my summer! (laughs) I said, it's not my fault your dog fell out of your truck. You know, you can either go somewhere else or choose A, B, or C. You know, I understand people get upset, and it's hard for us to, you know, deal with these people who are very emotional about the animals they love as well as our own emotions. So we're not really schooled for that. We don't really get much of that education. So (laughs) it can be a whole other level of stress. And also, you know, it's a whole other level of friendship because I consider all of my clients to be my friends because we get to know each other so well. It doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat, Buddhist or Baptist. They love their dog. I love their dog. That's the uniting thing, which is really cool. You know, we are caring about the dog and we can talk about politics or whatever because we're focusing on caring about the dog who doesn't care about politics Mm -hmm. or religion. So it's it's a beautiful job, really. Mm. And that aspect of your work came through so beautifully in the book. 
That was something that really warmed my heart. Because I've also interviewed medical doctors, and they don't have the benefit of that experience, those ongoing relationships for the most part. They don't really touch you. They don't really talk to you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all lab work and next, you know, and and take this drug and off you go. And and I think veterinarians fall into that too. But in this small animal practice, and particularly now where I do acupuncture, I sit on the floor with the pet and the owner, the caregiver of the pet, and we have an hour to talk about the animal, but also how are you doing? Mm. You know, how's your life going? And it gives me insights also into what might be going on with the animal. Mm-hmm. You know, we think we're treating animals, but in reality, we're treating relationships. My dog gets me up four times a night to go outside. My dog won't jump in the car anymore. Why is my horse bucking? You know, why does my cat stand over my head all night and yowl? You know, we got to figure that out. And it's for their relationship. They love each other, but they're having trouble. <laughs> and that's such a fascinating thing about the dynamics between people and animals, particularly people and their pets, that there's something about our thinking and our energy that affects these animals and that they reflect back to us somehow. Yes. You know, they feel our energy. They sense energy, period. There's a research project done at the Swedish Agricultural University where they found that if a person leading or riding a horse has an increase in heart rate, the horse has an increase in heart rate. So they sense our energy. And, you know, a dog can tell if they like someone right now or not. They're barking at someone you don't know across the street, and then they run off with someone you don't know because they're in love with them. They they can tell the difference, and we should pay attention to that. But another thing, for example, a client came to me with her dog who has irritability issues. The dog is biting the other dog. It's being grumpy, it's having digestive problems, and she comes in the room and I say, so, and how are you doing? She goes, oh, I hate my office worker. We had a big fight today and I can't stand her and I hate her. And I thought, okay, well, that's what, (laughs) if you go home carrying your hate from work, your dog's going to feel it, you know, and everybody else in your family. So it's really hard for us to drop our junk. I mean, it's hard for me to drive from my home to Durango and back without getting angry at some motorist, you know. It's a real challenge to keep clean. But, you know, when you're around your animals, they're going to pick it up. You know, both your bliss and your anger are contagious. And that connects with animal communication, which Mm. I find to be a a fascinating subject. A year or two ago, I watched a movie about a woman who's an animal communicator. And you have done a little training in that, and as a vet, I think you you actually said that you do experience that. And Mm -hmm. because animals don't speak English, you have to learn to do that, at least to some degree, whether aware of it or not. Yeah, I think every veterinarian is an animal communicator of some degree. And if you deal with animals all day long, every day, a little look in the eye, a flick of the tail, you know, it all adds up like words and phrases. And you They're going, okay, I know what's going on here. I'm starting to have an idea about what to look at, what might be causing the problem. You know, pet owners understand their animals as well. I mean, when the dog goes, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it needs to go out. Mm -hmm. And people understand little cues from their own pets. And the pets do understand some English words. There's a number of dogs that can 
tell the difference between a you know get your ball or get your bone and and remember do you remember Alex the African gray parrot? Yes. Well, Alex back in around 1970, this animal researcher Irene Pepperberg wanted to study animal language, and she went to a pet store and purchased a random African gray parrot named him Alex, and with a brain the size of a walnut, he learned to say a hundred words. He performed the math of a five to six year old human. He spoke in full sentences. He spelled phonetically. He could identify objects and colors. He'd bring a tray in and say, "What color key? Red. What color ball? Yellow. You know, how many blue? Four. You know, he was brilliant. And she couldn't get her work published. No one in the United States would publish it because that sort of research was taboo. Animals aren't conscious. They don't communicate." You know, they don't have souls. We're superior, period, end of story. Finally, a German periodical published her work, and from there it kind of spread, and he's become the poster child for animal consciousness or animal cognition. So he has opened the way for other studies into this realm, and now we know that prairie dogs have this very sophisticated language where they have different words for all their predators. They have so many predators, coyotes and bobcats and hawks and eagles and badgers, and they have different sounds for each one of those. And researchers put, like, boards of a badger, you know, like a, a board and painted a picture of a badger on it, and they called it a different word than badger. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they have a name for man with shovel versus man with gun, you know. <laughs> so, And even bees can count. Now we're finding out all this stuff that even bees can count. So, you know, if we just pay attention... If we just look in their eyes and listen and observe, we can understand them a lot better than we used to think we could. And so I was always very skeptical about animal communicators. I never really found one that I felt was really telling me something I didn't already know that the animal was telling me. Anyway, so I decided to take an animal communication apprenticeship, which I did with a woman named Kate Solisti. She lives near Boulder, Colorado. And lo and behold, I learned to listen and hear in my head words. For example, one day I was sitting in my office, a new client came in, and she left her things and her dog in the office and walked to the restroom. I didn't know anything about the dog. And I sat down in my chair, and the dog came over to me. I said, hi, how are you? And I heard in my head, oh, not so good. And as she turned her face away, and I said, what's the matter? And she said, oh, my stomach hurts and I don't feel well. I said, well, maybe we can help you. And she said, I don't think so. I think I'm dying. And then the woman came back in and I found out the dog had eaten the malamine-tainted dog food. That was a problem a number of years ago. And the dog died of kidney failure the next week. So, you know, I started thinking, well, maybe I understand some things. And few people would ask me to communicate with their animals. And They're so funny because the personalities come through. Like, I I remember this one golden doodle, and he was so gregarious. As soon as I started asking a question, I'd just hear this, he just had so much to say. And I asked him one day, I said, do you have anything to say to your mom? And he said, I love her, love her, love her, love her, love her. And I told her that, and she said, oh, my gosh, that's what I say to him. I love you, love you, love you, love you. And I never knew that. That's a personal, private thing. So I'm thinking, okay, I do understand. You do hear it in your head. You also sometimes get images. I had a dog patient that was just 
huge 80-pound big dog, just a chicken, though, and the problem was the dog would bolt. The woman would be walking the dog, and if an airplane went over or a bird or there was a flagpole, anything above, the dog would bolt and run away, which was really dangerous for the dog. So, you know, I tried some herbs and things, nothing helps. I thought, all right, let's try talking to the dog. So I opened up a conversation, and, and she kept saying, I'm little, I'm little, and I thought, you don't look little to me. And so I got this image of a dining room kitchen area in my head, a picture of this, like, maple dining table and china cabinet, and something crashed onto the ground right next to her when she was a puppy, like really mm. big bang right next to her, and it terrified her. So things from above scared her, and so I told her, it's not safe for you to run away. You know, you could get hit by a car. You should stay with your mom. And she said, she's little, and she was. You know, she wasn't much bigger than the dog. And I said, but she's smart. So I told the woman, you got to be the calm, confident leader here. You have to give this dog some confidence. So grab her by the collar, look her in the eyes, and tell her you're safe. And then the next time they came, she came to the door, and she didn't want to come in. And the woman grabbed her by the face and said, you're safe, and let her right in the room. And I went, my work is done here. That's, you guys did it. Good. And she has not had that problem since. So what did you learn in that animal communication training that helped you to be able to do that or to recognize that you could do that? Well, she basically had me get into a meditative state and then connect with the dog make a heart connection, like see a stream of light from your heart to their heart, and then ask permission to talk. And then I also read 10 books, you know, Marta Williams, Amelia Kincaid, you know, a whole bunch of animal communication books. And they're all very clear on how to do it. It's quite easy. It takes focus. That's the hard part. You really have to focus. And you have to listen without having judgments and opinions get in the way, which is hard with your own animals because you're emotionally involved. So you kind of just have to gently ask, you know, can we talk about something? And again, I think about how funny they are. I think about this German shepherd, two-year-old German shepherd, and it was like talking to a 17-year-old boy. I said, how are you today? Fine. What have you been doing? Nothing. You know? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I remember a steel great pit bull at the Humane Society. This man who worked there, wanted to practice animal communication. I said, pick one out, you know, we'll do it. Picked out this big gray pit bull, and he sat down, and I said, make a heart connection and ask if you can talk to him, and then just ask some questions like, do you like your food? You know, basic stuff to begin with. You know, how are you feeling? You know, like you would with a person. A gentle, ice-breaking question. And he sat there for a while, and he said, I'm not getting anything. So I, I said, let me try. So I sat down, and this dog had nothing to say. He was what we call in Chinese medicine a metal constitution. He's not a social guy. This dog is not a family dog. He needs to be with an old man that reads the paper and sits there, and that's his job is to hang out with this guy. He just isn't a social person like the golden doodle was. So it's very interesting. It's simple, but it just takes focus. And Kate used to point out to me, you're always trying to fix things, Carlene. You're always trying to be a veterinarian. You need to be an advocate for the animal. And so I don't claim to be a professional animal communicator. I don't do it often. I try to help my clients when I need to. 
How did you become interested in studying and exploring the spiritual nature of animals? What triggered that for you? Well, I was really stressed out, really burned out, and I was, you know, practicing some spiritual things. I got a black belt in karate, and I really liked Oriental philosophy, and I meditated, but I was still really pretty burned out, and I had heard so many odd things that animals aren't conscious, they don't have souls, they don't feel love, and none of that made any sense to me, and I was really conflicted about the general scientific community's opinion about animals in this regard, their non-physical aspect. And then I had a couple of clients that really set me going here. One was a Buddhist, and she had an old dog that was collapsed, couldn't get up, was dying, but she couldn't elect euthanasia because she had taken a vow to not kill. Buddhists take the vow, the first precept, to not kill. And so she believed the dog had to suffer its karma in this life in order to have a better incarnation in its next life. And this was new to me. I never heard of any of that. So I said, okay, well, let's see what we can do. And after a while, I figured out, well, the dog has Addison's disease. It's on prednisone to keep it alive. Let's stop the prednisone medication. We did. The dog died overnight. So that was good. And shortly thereafter, a born-again Baptist rancher woman called me to euthanize her old horse. And she had told me that her husband died in her arms a few years before. And when I euthanized the horse, I said, well, now the horse and your husband are together again. And she screeched at me. No, they're not. My husband's in heaven, and that horse is just dead. And then she started quoting Bible verses. I said, where'd the energy go there? I don't know, it's just gone. Well, I can quote Bible verses too, so we ended up having a really long discussion. I was late to my next appointment. I said, well, do you believe in reincarnation? She said, no, that's when you come back as an animal. I said, well, not necessarily. She said, well, there will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and body and soul will be reunited. I said, well, that sounds like reincarnation to me. Well, maybe it does, she says. (laughs) So anyway, I'm going, okay, is this horse former Buddhist monk, or is this horse just dead meat? Like, what is the spiritual nature of animals? I want to know. I want to know for me. I want to know if they're conscious. You know, so it was my own personal quest to understand. And then I started reading Carolyn Mace's book, Anatomy of the Spirit, and that book made me think, you know, someone really needs to do something like this for animals. And so I, I really liked the way she went back and forth from the spiritual teachings to the stories that were examples. And so I said, I'm going to do that. And that was sort of a structure that I wanted to do. So off I went, and for a while I'm like, how, where am I going to start with all this, all these religions, and I don't know anything about many of them. So I'll start with the beginning. I'll start with creation myths. I'm speaking with Carlene Stangi. She's a veterinarian with over 20 years of mobile emergency practice in rural Colorado. She now has a home office practice where she uses acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine. And she's the author of this wonderful new book, The Spiritual Nature of Animals, a country vet's exploration of the wisdom, compassion, and soul of animals. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH where am I going to start with all this, all these religions, and I don't know anything about many of them. So I'll start with the beginning. I'll start with creation myths. And then we went on following 
history of humans from we left paradise and became nomadic, got into shamanism, and then we became agricultural pagans. And I studied the mother goddess ancient Europe, ancient Egypt, and ancient Chinese beliefs. And then the ancient religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity. And then I had to have a science chapter. Are they conscious? And then the spirituality was more the modern thought. Mystics, clairvoyance, channels, and animal communicators. So what did those sources have to say about the spiritual nature of animals? A lot. But you have to read. (laughs) You have to read, like, you know, half a book to get a sentence about animals. You know, we're fairly vain and egocentric, and that is our number one difference. We have big egos. In fact, the Bible points that out. I was sitting here one day, and there's a knock at the door, and it was Jehovah's Witness. I said, come on in. Tell me what you guys believe about the spiritual nature of animals. And they gave me this very important Bible verse, which comes from Ecclesiastes 3.19. It says, there is an eventuality as respects the sons of mankind, and eventuality as respects the beasts. And they have the same eventuality. As the one dies, so the other dies. And they all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. See, the argument from the Bible is that only Adam received the breath of life from God at creation, and the animals didn't receive that. That breath of life is the eternal Holy Spirit, supposedly the animals didn't get. But this verse says we have the same breath. Plus, animals breathe and have life. So if God didn't give them the breath of life, where did they get it? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And this chapter, 3, Ecclesiastes, is a sermon on vanity. And the previous verse, verse 18, says something about God is testing mankind to remind him that he, too, is a beast. We're animals, too, okay? We think we're pretty cool. We are, because we, we have this big brain. Mm-hmm. Guess what? We don't have sonar, like dolphins and bats. We don't have the olfaction of bears and dogs. We don't have the vision of eagles. We don't have the hearing of a donkey. And we don't have chemoreceptors in our hands that can taste chemicals like an octopus. We can't shapeshift like an octopus. Well, some people can. And we can't change our colors and textures like an octopus can. I mean, there are a lot of amazing things that animals can do that we can't. So the Bible says we have the same spiritual nature. Buddhism says everything has Buddha nature. All sentient beings are able to be awakened. And the difference with Buddhism took me a long time to really get this. Tibetan Buddhism is a very complex vocabulary, and let's see if I can explain this. They believe that only humans have the ability to understand the teachings and control their minds to achieve enlightenment. Now, there are a few instances where people think animals have been enlightened, but it requires thought control. And very few people control their thoughts. And, the, <laughs> you know, that's what we try to do with meditation. And animals are more instinctual and are bound by the mode of nature. So they are not controlling their thoughts. But I wonder about it. When I watch a cat hunting, stalking its prey, it has to have control to wait. Don't go yet, Right? 
And so I really think we all have this inner guidance that tells us how to behave properly in the world and what's in our best interest. And the animals are more like angels in the Bible in that they're more compliant with spirit. They do what spirit says. We have free will and egos. We think we know better. We don't listen. We argue with that voice. A trite example is a bag of potato chips, right? You have a bag of potato chips, and you're eating away, and the voice in your head says, that's enough. And you, well, just a few more, right? You have a few more. Okay, that's a few more. Stop, right? <laughs> you don't stop. You do eventually. But, you know, when you hear that's enough, you stop then. That's your highest guidance. That's your conscience. And I suspect that animals follow that mostly, except when under stress. I was talking with Channel Abraham. I was in the hot seat. And I was asking questions about animals and how much influence humans have over their health and such. And she said something about they don't get in trouble unless we ask them to do more than they're vibrationally up to speed with. For example, if you say, I'll give you my approval if you run around these barrels, or I'll give you my approval if you jump these jumps, well, you know, they're conflicted there because maybe they're being told not to do it or they can't do it or it isn't safe, but we're feeding them or spurring them or saying, you know, I, I love you if you do this. Please do this for me. And they want to help, which, you know, with horses, these people love their horses, and the horses love their sports. If they didn't love their sports, they wouldn't be any good at it, just like us. We love to ski and play basketball and swim or whatever. And they do really enjoy athletic activity, but they get injured or they overdo it or they're asked to perform too much, and we have to intervene and say to the person, yeah, can you just cut back for a week? You know, they're really sore and you know, try to mitigate this relationship again for the well-being of the animal. So, you know, there's not only this spiritual nature in the animal and the spiritual nature in the human, there's the two together. This is why I call it animus, right? Animus is the Latin root of the word animals. It means soul's breath and life. The Spanish word meaning of animus is spirit. But you know, spirit isn't confined to physical. It can be broader, and it can connect and, you know, work in a group and so on. So I like to refer to the spiritual nature of animals and their humans and their relationship as the animus. It's also a nice word because it doesn't relate to any particular religion. Mm -hmm. I use the term essence. Yeah. The energetic essence, the energetic essence that lives on after death is what we're talking about. The energetic essence you feel when you call your dog is more than a physical beast coming at you. It's a response to your affection or your command, you know, or, you know, we have an interaction, a non-physical interaction, fear and love and all kinds of emotional things are happening. Non-physical interactions are happening. It's really quite fascinating. 
and I really want to study it more. In April, I'm going to be uh, lecturing at an end-of-life conference for my Chinese teacher down at the Qi Institute in Florida for veterinarians, and I'll be discussing more Taoism, which I only cover lightly in this book. But in Chinese medicine, there are five spirits in the body, one for each of the major organs, Shen for the heart, the Hun for the liver, the Yi for the spleen, the Ji for the kidneys, and the Po for the lungs. And the Po is the corporeal soul that goes down to earth with the physical components at death. And the Hun is the ethereal soul or spirit that goes up with the form of physical to the spirit realm with learned lessons. And the yin spirit entice the yang spirits to come in and stay in the body. And what we see with problems like anxiety or anger is that the shen and the hun, the yang spirits, they want to fly away. They want to fly off and get angry or get anxious and worry. And so you have to balance them and entice them back in to be housed in their organ. And that Taoists say that the purpose of life is for us to use our physical body as an alchemical cauldron in which we transform the heavy lead of suffering into the gold of wisdom and compassion. So I like that because there's so much suffering, you know, and what are you going to do with it? You can get angry about it, you can worry about it, you can get upset about it. It doesn't help. Somehow we have to learn to manage this suffering and transform it into wisdom and compassion. And that makes me think of this example of a dog this woman brought to me. It was an old golden retriever, had a huge tumor on its side that was oozing bloody serum all over the place. And everybody said, put this dog down. What is wrong with you people? You know, everybody else is always eager to tell you when you need to euthanize your dog. But when it's your dog, it's a different story. So they just weren't ready. The dog still had light in its eyes. It was happy to see them. It ate well. Just because it had this tumor, you know, they weren't ready to let it go. And so what's the hurry, right? So they come in, and, you know, there's a lot to be repulsed at. And the Buddhist term is aversion, you know. I don't want that. Keep it away from me. Oh, just kill it and get it out of here. What's wrong with you? No. If you drop the aversion and the repulsion and accept your duty as a veterinarian, you have to get past that and go into compassion. When you accept the deal, the problem that's coming to you, no matter how ugly it is, your heart opens up and you connect with that animus that's going on with between the people and the animal, and it feels like bliss in meditation. It's a beautiful feeling, and then you can go, all right, what can we do to help here? Well, let's make a better abdominal wrap so this isn't so messy. Let's clean it up first and wrap it up, and then here's some herbs for pain, and, you know, how about trying this food, and, you know, little things. Just soothe the situation. My Chinese teacher says, just make good chi. Just make good chi. You know, why do we have to make it hard on everybody and blame and shame and guilt and pain? You know, there's so much. Can't we just be kind and gentle and accepting? And so, yes, the time is short. The dog is going to be dead soon. Let's have a few more days. 
to enjoy each other and say goodbye. And so it was a beautiful experience for me. I try to do that with every patient now. And there's so many hard things, and with people too. The very first thing I learned that helped me a lot came from a clairvoyant. I had met her. I'd sewn her horse's face up, and I thought, I'm going to go talk to this clairvoyant about the spiritual nature of animals. And so I, I was talking with her, and I said, you know, I really feel badly when my patients don't heal. And she laughed. And she laughed some more. She laughed until she cried, nearly fell out of her chair. And I felt offended, you know. I said, well, I'm glad I can be a source of entertainment for you. She wiped her eyes and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but it's not your fault if animals don't heal. I said, really, what do people pay me for? She said, well, you help for sure. There's a lot more going on than just what you do. I said, like what? She said, maybe the animals had other plans. I said, animals have plans? She said, yes. She said, maybe the people and the animals are trying to learn something together. And she said, don't judge the situation. Judgment is pain. And I thought, kind of nuts, you know. But I said, I'm going to just practice this. I go, what do I do if an animal doesn't heal? She says, all you can do is pray they get the healing they want. And so I started practicing that. And it took me off the hook. You know, I wasn't in pain all the time with all my patients' pain. You know, and I realized how egotistical of me to think that I have to fix everything. Of course there's more going on than just what I do. Hello? (laughs) So that was a huge awakening for me. And then what did Jesus say? Judge not, or you will be judged. Thich Nhat Hanh said, let go of judgment and pain disappears. All the spiritual teachings tell us, don't judge. It's just going to cause trouble. But that's what we do all day long. We're evaluating and criticizing. You hardly drive down the road without going, well, that's an ugly color or... You know, that's a stupid thing to say. or You know, it's, and so I'm trying really hard to drop that as well. And each time I do, I feel less pain in my body. And that helps. It helps mm. me. And then I'm a nicer person with everybody else, too, because I'm not so grumpy and opinionated and crabby and complaining. So that was a huge lesson for me. Mm. Stop judging. Yeah, that's really beautiful, incredibly wise, and well worth the price of the book right there. That just that one thing. It's it's a work in progress, you know. It's really challenging for sure. Mm-hmm. But you know, a person can practice it by thinking about politics. Pick something that really sets you off, uh-huh. and then notice where you feel that in your body. Is it your throat? Is it your stomach? your back, your neck, and go, hmm, you know, every time I think about that, I get that pain. And pretty soon you'll start going, you know, I really don't want that pain anymore. <laughs> Maybe I'll just observe that without having opinions. And pain is a powerful teacher. Yes. And you talked about how you are called upon to euthanize animals. And as you're studying Buddhism, it sounded like you were struggling with some of that karmic stuff, the concept of karma and whether it's appropriate to take the life of an animal and how do you know when it's appropriate to do that. At one point in the book, you talk about how animals have their own karma and it sounds like a sticky dilemma for someone in your position to be in. It is really, and it's a huge issue. I mean, every 
book signing I've been to, someone's asked, you know, how do you know? And that is a tough question. And the animal communication part of connecting with your animal, they will tell you that is the best thing to do, is to listen in your heart and look in your animal's eyes, and you will know when they want to go, when it's time. But, but yes, I did, you know, I'm a bad Buddhist, period, because <laughs> veterinarians have to kill. We're constantly killing parasites. You know, we're constantly euthanizing. That's our job, and mm-hmm. it's not our job to make that decision. And a lot of veterinarians do that. They say, you need to put this animal down, or well, I'm not putting that animal down. It doesn't need to die. Well, you know what? It's really up to the caregiver, the animal's person, and I try really hard to do what they want. I figure if they love their animal, they know their animal the best, they're doing what's best for their animal, and it's hard enough for them to come to the decision that I don't need to be arguing with them about it. But, yes, with Buddhists, it's tricky because this first precept. Now, contrary to the common American Buddhist belief, the first precept, which is a vow to not kill, the primary purpose of the first precept is not to prevent animal suffering. The primary purpose is to prevent karma for humans. And this is even true in Jainism. Jains are very particular about killing. You know, they sweep the walk in front of them so they won't kill any insects. You know, it's nearly impossible not to kill a bug, but they don't have pets. Because if you have a pet, you have to feed them meat. And you might have to kill to feed it. And it might have parasites. So you might have to kill. So they're concerned with enlightenment and not having any karma. You can't escape samsara or this realm of physical world if you have karma connecting you here. So, you know, I'm not worried about that. You know, if I have to take on some karma to do what I feel in my heart is right, I signed up to be a veterinarian. This is my duty. I'm doing my duty. And I I asked this one Buddhist nun once, I said, whose side is the first precept on? You know, if my horse breaks his leg, I'm going to shoot him. I'm not going to let him flop around for weeks until he dies. She said, thank you for what you do. So it's, <laughs> I, I am okay with it. You know, I trust, I learned in this whole process to trust my inner guidance. Unfortunately, I don't euthanize anymore because the DEA license that gives you permission to have euthanasia solution used to be $200 for three years. It is now $700 a year, which may be in part due to the suicides in veterinarians. And, yes, we don't need a lot of euthanasia solutions floating around out there. So it's controlled substance, and I decided I don't need to do that anymore. I do acupuncture. I don't need to do euthanasia. So I have given up on that, but I've done enough. (laughs) I've killed Mm -hmm. a lot of horses and dogs and cats in my life. I almost always felt like it was the right thing to do. And, you know, I can only trust my inner guidance on it. And that's what each person has to do. Your cousin and brother and nephew and everybody is going to tell you what to do. And you and your neighbors <laughs> are going to shame you. you got to 
You have to make your own decision based on the love you have for your animal. And also there's the component of, I can't take care of you anymore, right? I'm a little old lady. I have a 60-pound German shepherd, and he can't walk. I can't take care of him anymore. Let's get real. The suffering is done, okay? It's all right. No blame, shame, guilt. And, you know, I don't think there's bad karma. Now, the Buddha also said that you can override any precept to prevent suffering. So that, to me, says you listen to your Buddha nature. Your Buddha nature, your inner guidance, God within you says you love your animal, the animal wants to go, it's time to go, you do it. If he says, you know, dog still wants to stick around, that's okay, too. Mm -hmm. When my cat and dog recently transitioned on. I I really struggled with it. My dog went first, and it was hot summer, and he was about 16, and he was staggering down the driveway like a drunk. And I was really concerned about how he was going to move on, because I live up on the second floor, so he has to walk up and walk down a staircase to come in and out, and he is free to come and go as he pleases. And I was really worried about his not being able to do that. And so I would talk to him inwardly. Mm-hmm. And I would tell him, you don't have to stick around for me. Whenever you're ready to go, please feel totally free to go and that I'll be okay. Don't worry about me. Because I've had this very strong sense that our pets tend to take on a lot of our stuff for us, out of love for us. And I didn't want him to carry that at that point. And I didn't want him to suffer. That was the main thing. I, I didn't want him to suffer. And one morning, I heard him go out. He pushed the screen door open and started walking down the stairs, as he always does first thing in the morning. And then I heard him tumble down the stairs. Oh. And I jumped up and I ran out there. It was a Sunday morning at about 5.30. And he was laying down at the bottom of the stairs and I just I sat with him and he didn't move he just lay there still his eyes were open he was present and I just sat with him and after about 15 minutes he tried to get up but he could only lift his head and one of his front legs he tried a couple of times and then he relaxed and he surrendered and I just sat with him for a couple of hours. And he, I think his his presence faded away, but his body was still alive. And I took him up to my vet because I wasn't sure what was going on. And I had the vet euthanize him. But the vet told me that he was already gone. Mm-hmm. Beautiful story. Yeah. And then the following year, my cat went. And she stopped eating at one point. And I took her up to the vet and he said, oh, she's severely dehydrated. And he gave her a subcutaneous injection of solution. And I brought her back home and she ate for a couple of days and then she stopped eating again. And so again, I was concerned about her suffering. And the last thing the vet told me was that cats usually hang on. They, They don't go as easily as dogs. And sometimes They'll hang on for like two weeks. Mm. 
And so I really didn't want her to suffer. And so I talked to her throughout the day. I would tell her that it's totally okay to go. Don't stay for me. Whenever you're ready to go, please go on your own terms. I really don't want you to suffer. Of course, a lot of that not wanting her to suffer was my own discomfort with observing mm-hmm. right. another suffering. Mm-hmm. And I called her mother, and she came to say goodbye. We sat down. My kitty was hanging out underneath our wood stove. And as soon as we sat down, our kitty came out to visit us. First she went to her and spent about a minute with her, allowing her to be petted and loved. And then she came over to me, spent a minute with me, and then she went back under the wood stove, and she she passed on the following night. What and I love about your stories is how sacred you allowed death to be. It's a very important time, like birth, right? It's a transition. That energetic essence is living on. It's transitioning out of that decrepit body. And you gave it such honorable, loving, gentle passing. So often people are upset. I mean, it's easy to be upset and crying and rushing to the vet. And and we miss out on the beauty of this these last moments that are just like birth. It can be painful, but it's so special. So you really were able to share in those. And, and I mean, if I, when I die, I hope somebody <laughs> treats me like that, you know, holds me and, and gently gives me space, gives me permission to leave, and lets me go in a surrounded, loving energy. So way to go. There's a, there's a wonderful movie. I think the title is The Barbarians. It's a Canadian film where this older guy is in a hospital and he's getting ready to die. And he invites all of the most important people in his life to come visit him, to mm-hmm. celebrate with him. Mm-hmm. And like you, I hope that I can call upon some people to come and spend that time with me without suffering and without fear and without discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I know in the Buddhist tradition, they consider it very important that mm. the energy of the people around you as you're dying has a profound effect upon the way you pass and even into one's next life, you know, whether mm-hmm. you believe in reincarnation or not. Right. I really enjoyed the Tibetan book of living and dying with the instructions with animals just to tell it, I love you, thank you for being my friend, I'm sorry for anything I did to hurt your feelings, I forgive you for the time you chewed up my shoe or whatever, you know. And then as they pass, visualize them becoming completely healed in every way, you know, emotionally, physically, spiritually, completely healed and moving off into divine, pure white light, pure light, and just dissolving into the light. And they say that you can do this for someone or an animal who has passed long after the death. Mm -hmm. And it's still beneficial because it helps with our regrets. We don't want to have any regrets because that's connection. It's a karmic 
problem. So you just want to be sure and clean and let them go. And it can be a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. I've done some interviews with people about the dying process, and being fully present with somebody at that time is a very profound opportunity. Yes, for both. For both, exactly. So intimate. Nothing more intimate, really, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm speaking with Carlene Stange. She's a veterinarian with over 20 years of mobile emergency practice in rural Colorado. She now has a home office practice where she uses acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine. And she's the author of this wonderful new book, The Spiritual Nature of Animals, a country vet's exploration of the wisdom, compassion, and soul of animals. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. And at the end of your book, you talk about the passing of your horses. Mm-hmm. And I love the way you talked about your horses, the personalities. They were all so completely different. Mm-hmm. And I would love for you to talk about what you learned from them and the way they passed on. Well, May was just an amazing mule. My husband was riding her the day I met him. And she was this all-white mule, completely gentle. And later on, we used her as a pack mule, and he rode a younger mule in her older years. If we do a day ride, we just let her loose because she just came along. And often when you're riding in the mountains, you come into rugged terrain and obstacles like bogs, really deep, muddy holes. You can't really see where the bottom, you know, you can't really see there a bog until you get into it. There's down logs and there's ice and snow and cliffs and, you know. And I remember so many times we would be stuck somewhere on a hillside going, "Uh uh-oh, how do we get out of this one? And I'd look up and here would be May. And she'd be just very gently walking along and then get up above us and look down at us like, this way, guys. He's like, oh, follow me. You know, so we'd follow her. And as she got older, she would have trouble getting up. And there were days we'd come and she was down and we couldn't get her up. And we'd have to roll her over and then she could get up. And one winter day, I, I couldn't find her. I called her and couldn't find her. It was dark and it was snowy and calling, May, May, where are you? And heard a rustle and found her. She is in a tree well. You know, she had her head up against the trunk of a pinion tree, and her legs were up in the snow, sort of up above her. So I ran and got my husband and put a halter on her, and I pushed, and he pulled, and we got her up, and off she went. And then my horse, Sporty, he was a bully. He was a bully, no question about it. And he would beat her up and take over the feed, and she was getting skinny. So we built a barn with individual feed bunks with hog fencing in between it so that he couldn't bite her. She could sit there and eat grain and look right at him, and he couldn't get her. So that was good. But one day, I went out to the pasture to give her her pain relief, and she was dead. She just laid down and died. And I thought, you know, May, you always knew the best way to go. You just <laughs> There was no sign of struggle. Then there was Pecos. Pecos I got in vet school for 100 bucks. Best 100 bucks I ever spent. He was so much fun, that horse. When I got him, all he knew how to do was rear. 
And I couldn't afford a saddle. I was in vet school, and I would just lean on him, lean up against him. Ray Hunt, actually, at a clinic. And I asked him, how do I get on my horse? I don't have a saddle. He said, just lean on him and jump up with your chest on him and then lay your belly over him and then sit up on him and see how that goes. So over a period of days, I did that and found myself sitting on him. And he was so much fun. The horse loved to run. He was so energetic, and we covered a lot of territory together for many years and did lots of pack trips together. I just trusted him. I mean, he would take me through anything. I pointed him at some obstacle. He just went through it. I called him like a Ford truck. He's like a pickup truck. He just like a four-by-four. He would go. So we had just many mountainous, great rides. And he lived to be 34, right? (laughs) He couldn't see. He couldn't hear. He had arthritis in all four legs. And then that spring, he did something to one of his stifles, which is analogous to our knee. That really did it. I couldn't pick up any of his feet to trim them. And I thought, oh, gosh, how am I going to take care of your feet? And I just would turn him loose in my yard. And we have an asphalt driveway. And he wouldn't go anywhere. The donkey was in the barn, so he didn't want to leave her. But he'd walk up and down the driveway, and he filed his feet perfectly, beautifully, all by himself. I was feeding him a bag of senior feed a week. He had a snotty nose from an abscessed tooth somewhere, but he didn't hardly have any teeth left. His dentist couldn't really figure out which tooth it was. We pulled one. It didn't help. You know, I tried all kinds of medications. He was on herbs and medication, and I used laser and acupuncture and everything. I did everything for that horse because I loved him so much. And I just realized I can't take care of you anymore. I had to go visit my family in Wisconsin, and I took him out to the pasture to be with the other horses, and Sporty was his pal. Sporty beat up everybody else but Pecos. He would let Pecos eat. He took care of him, kind of herded him around in his older years when he couldn't see very well. But he couldn't even hear or see Sporty on the other side of the bridge anymore. And Sport looked at me like, Mom, I can't take care of him anymore. And I'm like, I know. Then he nearly fell in the pond trying to get a drink, and I thought, you know, you're going to drown in the pond. I, a lot of old horses drowned in ponds around here. So I'm like, yeah, this is it. So we dug a grave, and I let him eat all the feed he wanted and got a big drink and took him to the grave, and my husband had the 357 Magnum and point blank to the skull. Boom. There he was, gone. And I could feel him when I walked away to go get more tissues. I could feel him with me. And I said, don't stay here. Go to the light. Go to the light. You know, I had told him, I love you so much. Thank you for such a wonderful life. You know, all of that. On and on and on, over and over. And then Sporty gave out this mournful, weak whinny. And that was it. And so now I visualize where the bullet went in as a unicorn's horn. Big, white, bright unicorn horn. And he's running off. Sporty, Sporty was a challenge from the get-go. He was from a line of horses that I won't name that don't like anybody telling them what to do. And I have treated a bunch of them. I had a client that had 64 of them. And, you know, most horses, when they run at you, if you put your hand up in their face, they shy away so they won't run you down. That was not the case with these horses. 
they would run you down. They would run you over. They would push you. And Sporty, even as a yearling, he would chest butt me. So how I got him, I was at this place, and I saw him. I saw all these foals. I went in the barn, and I'm walking through the barn. I'm looking at all the foals, and I go, who's this? And she goes, oh, that's from my mare and, and the big stallion. And I said, oh, he's cute. What are you going to do with him? She said, I'm going to sell him. And I said, I'll buy him. And then I thought, who said that? I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> oh, well, you get $500 off. You can have him for cheap because you'll get a good home. I'm like, oh, okay. You <laughs> know, I got myself a horse. And he was just a pistol. He would chest butt me. He would kick at me. He would bite me. I had a gentle horse shoer that took him to a futurity and, you know, gently trained him. But when he tried to trim his feet, He'd try to hurt you. He'd try to bite you, kick you, strike you. You know, he was just a pistol. And I came out there one day, and I was late to the horseshoeing and trimming. He was just getting a trim, and Sporty had the horseshoer's jacket over his head and his right leg up in a one-leg hobble, and he's just squealing and screaming and bucking. Normally a horse goes calm when you do those things, but not sport. No, he is raging mad, and the horseshoer says, I hope you don't mind, I had to discipline your horse. And I said, no, because you're not hurting him. And he's trying to hurt you. You know, I can't sedate him every time hoof trim. But I had to. For years I had to do things to restrain him. Finally, I just, you know, mainly what worked for me with him is I just say, sport, you ever hurt me, you're dead. And I mean it. And he understood it. He believed it, and he never hurt me. He stopped biting me. He never kicked at me. He didn't chest butt me anymore. He still argue, but I'd say, sport. You know, I'd pick up his hoof, and he'd rip it away, and I'd go, sport. And I'd pick it up, and he'd let me. So I ended up doing his trimming, my husband and I, and we used boots on him instead of shoes because he just gave every horseshoer a nightmare. And we need to protect those guys. Their job is really hard, and <laughs> they don't need to get hurt. So he was just a pistol, and I rode him. I rode him on pack trips and day rides, and, you know, I'd say, go left, and he'd (laughs) scream and buck and, like, what? You know, just go left. What's the problem? And, you know, I talked to Abraham about it, and she said, some horses don't like to be ridden. And I said, well, that's him. He doesn't like to be ridden. So we just decided to pack him. Well, in the meantime, he broke his pelvis. I came out one day, and he found a wooden fence post broken on the ground, and he was on the other side of it, and he had a broken pelvis, and he was in a lot of pain. So I confined him for two or three months, and you know, a lot of people think that's never going to heal, and veterinarians told me that'll never heal. But pelvic fractures are fairly common in horses. They bump into things, they fall down, it's not uncommon. And it's a box, the pelvis is, so if you keep it stable, if you stabilize it and align it, it can heal. So I learned from a chiropractor how to go in, actually I had to go in rectally and feel the pelvis inside the horse and find out what was wrong, and then I used chiropractic to adjust it, to get it lined up. I had to sedate him to do that. And I did acupuncture and so on. And if I didn't sedate him to just do acupuncture or any chiropractic from the outside, he would 
try to kick me or bite, you know, swish his tail in my face. That's one of his favorite. Whack, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I put my finger on his cheek and I said, sport, you got two choices. Either get along with me or die, because I'm the only one that gives a spit about you. And he pursed his lips and turned away and let out a big sigh. <sighs> and then he stood there. You know, and I'm sure there's a bunch of horse trainers out there. You know, I took flack for years, you know, because it's always your fault if your horse behaves badly, right? I'm a bad person. I'm a bad trainer. I'm the one to blame. But there's a lot of people that get animals that are difficult, just like children. You get these ones that just try everything that you have. Anyway, he stood still. He let me, you know, do acupuncture and chiropractic, and he healed. And we took him on more pack trips. We packed him. He did great. We packed out elk on him. We packed in camps on him. He was an excellent pack horse. He'd follow like nothing. He thought he was hurting everybody. You know, <laughs> he thought he was the boss behind everybody, telling everybody what to do. So he was happy. He loved being a pack animal. And so he was great. And then he got dry eye. Dry eye. Horses don't even get dry eye, the ophthalmologist told me. It's rare. He had dry eye. His eyes would swell up thick with pus and goo and red, and they hurt him. And I finally figured out, by talking to an ophthalmologist in Florida, to use serum, to get blood out of his veins, spin it down, collect the serum, put in syringes, and squirt it in his eyes. He said, do it four times a day. I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> he doesn't even let me put eye ointment in. He's so difficult, right? So I would have to snub his face down to a post, and he'd still, you know, twist his head side to side, and I'd squirt, and it would go all over his face, and like, squirt. I'm trying to help you. Oh, he was just a piece of... He tried every molecule of my being. Over the years, though, he got better and better. I mean, it made him feel better. It felt good. It helped a lot. So every day for years, I had to drive out to the pasture, catch him, put serum in his eyes. And in the last few years of his life, all I had to do was go out, take the fly mask off, and do it in the field. He didn't argue too much anymore, finally. <laughs> and so, you know, he was always hurting himself. Like, even on a, on a day ride, I'd tie him. You, you always tie a horse high and short. You don't leave the rope long and low because they can get their legs caught in it, trip on it, neck get caught in it, and they can hurt themselves. I've seen bad things happen this way. But even when I tie him high and short, he would get caught up in it, you know. On pack trips, he'd always get his picket line caught on something, you know, the mules would be fine, Pecos would be fine for days, but he would be wrapped around a bush like a spool of thread, and he'd be over there going, ha, 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 get over here and untie me, you know, and I'd go and untie him, and then he'd walk off without any, any, you know, thank you, no gratitude at all, and, you know, I just, I always felt like, okay, I must have owed this horse from another life. Because, you know, all I do is take care of him. And at the end, I went one day to the pasture and found him covered in mud, completely caked. And I thought, what? I laughed. I go, what did you do to yourself this time? And I took his fly mask off, which was completely caked with mud. 
and I could see by his face that he was really ill. I looked at the color of his gums, and he, they were not the right color, muddy. And I checked his hydration. He was really dehydrated. And I couldn't see anything wrong with him on the outside. And so I took him up to the barn and I pumped some fluid, some water into his stomach with a stomach tube. And he peed a full bladder full of blood, straight blood. And I said, okay, that's not good. And, you know, did a number of other procedures to try to figure out. At this point, he's 22, and his eyes bothered him every day. And, you know, finally, I brought him home because I, I couldn't stay out the pasture all night and take care of him, so I brought him to the house so I could take care of him. And his eyes were really swollen, and I looked into his eye, and I heard him say, let me go. I said, ah, you're going to be fine. He goes, no, it's time. I decided. Let me go. And he was just standing there. I mean, with colics and other painful deaths, horses thrash, they fall down on the ground, they paw, they pace, they're uncomfortable. He just stood there, just stood there like a rock. And so I thought, well, we'll just give him a chance, see what happens. I put him in the paddock. And, you know, when I brought him to the house, he didn't want to get in the trailer. And I told him, I promise I'll bring you back to the pasture. And he got right in. So that night at, at home in the barn, he's just standing there. And at 2 in the morning, I think it was, I got up to give him another shot of analgesics. And he was drinking and eating. But he was not in his body. And I went up to touch him. and He was ice cold. It was very interesting. You've probably experienced that with your dog, how they're really not there. The body's still happening, but the person is not there, and so I, I knew he was there, but not in the body, you know, near-death experiences talk about people being in the room and seeing everything that's happening, and so I'm crying, and I'm sobbing, but I'm saying, you know, I love you, thank you for being my teacher, he taught me so much about broken pelvises and dry eye and all kinds of things, you know, thank you, you know, I'm sorry for all the fights we had, and I forgive you for everything and, you know, prayed that his karma be forgiven and that the karma between us be forgiven and that our karma be done between us, you know, that we're even now, okay? And I went back to bed, got up at 5 in the morning, and he was dead, and he had this look of complete euphoria on his face. I have never seen it on another horse another animal, ever. It was astounding. It's like, wow, you know, he was a fighter. He was the kind of horse, I think about people ride horses into war. Why would a horse go into war with swords and guns? Why would they do that? Sport would do it. He was not afraid. He would charge in there, ram into everybody, you know. And he didn't like anybody telling him what to do, so I let him die in his own way. And the Buddhists say you should let them die naturally. And it was amazing to see him die naturally. And the look on his face just told me, you know, he went somewhere really good. You know, his struggle was over. He was surrendered to the bliss. It was a hard thing to watch, but it was, again, really, really 
beautiful at the same time. What a beautiful story. In the end, what do you think is the most profound lesson that you've learned from animals? Hmm. Well, that they are spiritual beings. They could be, you know, shamans say that when they travel to spirit realm, an animal may appear as a human or vice versa. So like if a shaman goes to spirit realm with their cat, they put a crystal around their neck so they can identify them because crystals don't change over there. They're the same in both realms, and so they can identify their cat. So this material perspective that we have is all due to the way our brains interpret and create this reality, what the Buddhists say, the world is a mental construct, right? The Buddha saw that the world is empty. In meditation, in the year 500 BCE, he's sitting under a fig tree, and he realizes what scientists only began to understand with quantum physics, that the world is empty. Only 5% of the universe is visual matter. The only reason we perceive a table is because of the way our eyes interpret the light energy reflecting between the atomic particles of the table, and our brain translates the information and says, that's a table. The world is a mental construct. It's real, but it's our creation, and there's this realm beyond that. What do the Hindus say? That this is the reflection world? And the near-death experiences say when they die, they see everything in a mirror. You know, so there's this other realm and, you know, we can come and go from it. And the animals come and go more easily from it. They're more fluid with it. They're not so constructed by it. We got it all when, uh, you know, we discovered duality, right, wrong, good, bad. And they didn't, they kind of are still in the paradisal realm of not quite understanding the duality like we do. We've created this problem for us to come in here and learn. And so... You know, I see them now as eternal spiritual beings. And that that's exciting and fun. And I think that's the most important thing. That's beautifully put. And I've so enjoyed talking with you. This has been one of the most wonderful interviews I've ever done. And the book as well, just a fabulous, fabulous book. Well, I love you, Tonio. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, too. You, you've been really fun to chat with. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's been such a great pleasure. And I want to thank you so much for all the work that you've done to come to this place where you were able to write this book. Well, I'd say it was my pleasure. It was, and it was like so many things in spiritual growth. There's a lot of pain that goes with it, too. But, you know, letting go of that duality again and just looking for the equanimity of it and accepting it, it's been really very helpful for me. I'm a completely different person than I was when I started the book, thankfully. Mm -hmm. As someone who has been practicing various spiritual traditions over the past 40 years, I have great appreciation for everything you wrote in the book. And I'm so happy. For me, it's always tremendously gratifying to hear that there are really wise people out there. And, I mean, people who listen, who pay attention, and who are present enough to really respond to what's going on around them. And that's a really beautiful, beautiful thing, I think. Well, I'm, I'm flattered and grateful for your <laughs> kind words. I'm a much more hard on myself than you are. 
on uh, me. <laughs> well, I'm very hard on myself, so I totally yeah. understand that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm learning to, you know, and when I listen to that inner voice, you know, I, you're so nice to me. You know, I want to be nice to myself like that, too, so working on that. And that was actually one of the things that you reminded me of that I managed to block out of my memory, and that was to be kind to myself, to send loving kindness to myself. I'm really good at doing that to others, but I, <laughs> you know, I think, well, if I put it out to the universe and to everybody else, it'll come back to me, but I don't make the effort to directly give it to myself, and yeah. reading your Receiving. book reminded me to do that for myself, and and that was a gift in itself. So, yeah. Receiving is, is hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much, Carlene. Thank you, Tonio. Thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Mm, my pleasure entirely. I hope I get to meet you someday. That would be wonderful. I have some relatives up there, so maybe we'll come visit someday. We'll, we'll stay in touch. Very good. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Carlene Stangy. She's a veterinarian with over 20 years of mobile emergency practice in rural Colorado and now has a home office practice where she uses acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine. And she's the author of this wonderful, wonderful new book, The Spiritual Nature of Animals, a country vet's exploration of the wisdom, compassion, and soul of animals a wonderful integration of animal stories, traditional spiritual wisdom, and quantum science to help open our minds to see animals in a completely new way. that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Tony Epstein. Until next time, have a wonderful week. This show is brought to you by Goddard College Community Radio. For more information, check out wgdr.org. No regrets Although you found somebody new No Sweetheart, no matter what you say or do Well, I know our love will linger When the other love forgets So I say goodbye with no regrets No regrets Though our love is 
Unity.